Welcome to Walk in the Truth Podcast. Have you ever looked back in time and considered how certain defining moments have shaped your life and future? Today, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, looks at the importance of defining moments and how we can recognize what God is saying through them. So glad to see you this morning and uh, as we uh Continue on in our service. Keep in mind that we have a number of students that are at student camp this week. Several busloads of students and student uh, sponsors and leaders or staff are in Glorieta, New Mexico. Anybody ever been to Glorieta, New Mexico? Would you raise your hand? Several of you have. Uh, it is less than 80 degrees as a high every day. The lows are about 55. We hope to bring all the students back. We hope they will all come back at the end of that great week of cool weather. But also be praying for some very uh, important moments in their lives where they come to grips with the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, salvation, uh, other steps of discipleship. All those will be available to them this week as they uh, are prayed for, preached to, they worship together. It's always a great time. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you please take them and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 today, beginning in verse 3 all the way through verse 8. Ephesians chapter 1, the title of the message is A Moment of Acceptance. Now this is our defining moment series and we continue on with several aspects of what that means to have a defining moment with God. You know, we have all kinds of experiences in our life, thousands of experiences, but only a few defining moments that change life from the moment we have that experience. Believe it or not, God wants to have defining moments with you. He wants you to have experiences where you think about him differently, where you think about your life differently, where you think about the future differently. And my encouragement is that you learn to have these moments with God, and often those moments are initiated by a passage of Scripture and the movement of the Holy Spirit and the conviction that God is wanting to teach you something. That'll be my prayer today. Let's stand together as we read the Word of God beginning in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, Paul writes this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. By the way, if you ever see me write uh, a letter or you see one of my communications, it always ends with 10,000 blessings, comma, John Metter. That's where this comes from. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Well, what a passage of Scripture. And it speaks so loudly of God's perspective of you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Father, today I pray that you would allow this text to come alive in our minds and hearts in the same way it was in the life of Paul and those who read it 2,000 years ago. Father, help us to take it personally, to be intimately acquainted with what all these words mean and what it means to be loved by you eternally. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated if you would. I love the book of Ephesians, uh, but it's a unique letter. 
This epistle is not written to solve problems that are happening in a particular church. But Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to be read to the church at Ephesus, but also to be read by all of the churches in the New Testament era. Not to solve a problem, but to answer the most important question a believer can have. Now that important question is, as followers of Jesus, do you know who you are? You and I need to know who we are in Christ, our identity, who we are, and how God sees us. There was a man I read about years ago who told of a man who stepped onto the platform uh, at an American Legion convention with thousands and thousands of people at that convention. He picked up a microphone, and looking over the crowd, he asked this question, can anyone tell me who I am? And as the story, backside of the story was told, he had lost his memory, he had no record of his past, no record of identity. He didn't know who he was with. He couldn't remember who he was, so his desperate plea was, can anybody tell me who I am? And I love that story, which has a good ending, by the way, because we all have that question inside of our hearts and minds. Can anybody tell me who I really am? We all want to know the answer to this. We all want to know who we are in the eyes of God. We also want to know this, who are we in the eyes of others around us. It's an incredible question. And I think it's an important question because the pursuit of acceptance and the pursuit of affirmation is almost universal. Everyone needs to know that they're accepted. And so they ask questions like, who am I? Who are my people? Am I accepted? Am I loved? Can you affirm me in any way? So we call these identity questions. And they're tied into our self-awareness and our self-concept of, of who we are. And at the bottom line, we want everyone to accept who we are and respect who we are, no matter how weird it may seem. And today, there's a lot of weird ideas of who we are. And by the way, if you try to find out who you are without your creator answering the question, then you're going to be in a weird place and you're going to identify in a very, very strange way. That's what's happening in our world today. If you leave the creator out of the question... Expect a strange answer. But the bottom line is we should be able to know who we are, especially in the eyes of God. And the reason this is important to me is because as a young man, I struggled with my own self-identity. Now, my own struggle was far more basic than some of the things that we hear about today where everybody wants the right to be whatever they choose and they want you to be okay with that, whatever it is they choose to be. I just simply struggled with being accepted. I struggled with my own self-identity. I felt like I'd never measured up, partly because I'd grown up with a hearing impairment, but partly because I had been rejected by people that I thought really mattered. So my story is I used athletics to try to get even. I, I, I used athletics to be as good as other people. In fact, my quest in athletics was never about excellence. It was never about going to the next level. It was always about the competition of saying, I'm at least as good as you are and probably better on the athletic field. And I'm going to make that very clear if I could. But the reason I did that is because I never felt like I measured up. And I never felt like I was at home in my own self. And I had a chip on my shoulder. No matter how successful I was, a chip on my shoulder, and it was obvious to others. I consistently compared myself with other people. How I looked, how I presented myself, how athletic or not athletic I was, how well I did in class or in school, whatever my job was going to be at the end of it all. 
And of course, my problem was that I approached identity from my own perspective instead of the perspective I should have. I didn't realize that my true identity was really found through the eyes of God who created me with a purpose and with significance. And I was missing that part of my life as I was 18, 19 years of age. The God factor is so incredibly important, and that's what Ephesians 1 talks about. The God factor of who you really are, why you were created to be here, and how God sees you. And this text today can answer that question for every person in this room. Now, ultimately, in in seeking God during those years, I had to come to grips with three important truths. Let me give you those truths real quick. The first one is that God is who he says he is. God God is always representing himself well. And in the book, in the Bible that we're reading today, the book of Ephesians especially, he is self-identifying himself, self-revealing himself. God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, letting the scriptures be written by these inspired men is saying, this is who I am. And this is how you can identify that I'm at work in your life. God is who he says he is. The second truth is God can do what he says he can do. Whatever promise he makes for you, he can fulfill that. But the third one really plays into what we're talking about today. I am who God says I am. I'm not who somebody else says I am. I am who God says I am. I'm not who I think I am. I am who God says I am. And this text reveals some incredible truths for that understanding. So looking back at your text, I'm going to bring three things to the surface here. First of all, the scripture here in Ephesians chapter 1 says, you are chosen. You are chosen. If you look at verse 4, where we begin our journey here today, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I love that line. I share it all the time. I find it creeping into my conversations when I'm talking to people that are struggling with some aspect of of their lives. God chose you from before the foundation of the world. That was a long time ago. You know, we all want to be chosen, don't we? We all want to be someone's choice. We want to be on the team. We want to be in the group. We want to be chosen for the job. We want someone to choose us for a significant friendship or relationship. We want to be chosen for the award or the reward that recognizes our talent or whatever it may be. But according to this, God wants you to know that he made a decision in eternity past to choose you and to love you and to make you part of his world. Now think about what that means. That means that before we existed, before we could choose to acknowledge God, before we could love God, before we could serve God, before we could even read about God, he chose us. That means long before we would have any merit at all, long before we had any worthiness in our lives, God chose us from before the foundation of the world. And that's fascinating to me. I think it's amazing that the God of the universe would know me and love me and choose me long before I came into existence. But that's what the scripture teaches And as you walk through the scripture, you'll find these little glimpses of this truth all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Let me bring some of those back to your memory. I'm sure you've heard of them before and read them. What about where the Bible talks about you before you were actually born, where it says you were fearfully and wonderfully made? Or where it talks about the fact that God weaves us in our inward part while we're still in the womb. 
Well, when Jesus said that God's eyes on the sparrow, and the song, of course, is he also watches me, or where Jesus says he knows the number of hair on your head. I mean, all kinds of references in the Bible that says that God knows you, that God sees you, that God is aware of you, that God loves you, and in this passage, that God chose you to be part of his life. The psalmist David had these same kind of thoughts back thousands of years ago as he must have looked up into the heavens at night while he was watching the sheep before he became king and considered the stars and the solar system and everything he could see from planet Earth that you and I can see uh, with our own eyes. And he wrote these words. He said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David was incredulous. Why would you look at me, God, when you're the creator of all this? Why is it that you would have your attention on me? How is that possible? That verse reminds me of some uh, images that came out recently from the NASA's Webb Telescope. And for me, it displays the unfathomable greatness and the sovereignty of God. I'm reminded of a, a passage in the Old Testament that says, he counts the number of the stars and he gives names to all of them. And all that's so amazing to me. But when you see images of this Webb telescope, you see some incredibly graphic images of the stars and the solar system and the universe. Let's look at about two or three of those today. The first one is a picture of separate galaxies that are interacting hundreds and thousands of light years away. And the, the camera has caught those images. And it's amazing to consider that all those things are happening out there and that God spoke all of those into existence. A second image of the Covina Nebula where stars are supposedly born. And you see this huge cloud of stars and all kinds of matter floating out there. And you're reminded that the God of the universe spoke these things into existence in eternity past. Or that third image is a cloud of gas around a dying star. Again, all thousands and thousands of light years away. It's almost ungraspable in the mind, isn't it? That God has created that and spoke that into existence, but parallel with that thought, the greatness of a mighty God is the idea that he would look at us and choose us and know you and choose you of his own free will because he loved you, because he wanted you. God created the universe with a word. That's powerful. That's how powerful he is and always has been. And yet, this creative God knows us, loves us, and chooses us. You know what it's like to be chosen. What about what it's like to be chosen by God? And to know this God loves you. And I know this, I know there are times when all of us feel unloved and unworthy, and that, that's just a fact of life. But in spite of all that, God steadfastly declares and demonstrates that we are in fact loved by him and chosen by him. And you let that frame your self-identity. Because in every other way that you view yourself, this way is foundational to a healthy perspective of who you are. Let it form the foundation. You are chosen by God, the scripture says. Now there are three words I want you to repeat today, simply because it matters. I am chosen. Would you say that today? I am chosen. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you need to be aware of all that that means, that you are chosen. 
Now, Ephesians brings up another idea that's important for us to have, to frame our self-identity. You are adopted. You are adopted. As the verse continues on, it says in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, this is a huge thing. The idea of being adopted by God is a massive part of our identity as followers of Christ. And again, it's a decision and a declaration made by God on your behalf to help you know how he includes you in his sphere and his life. God is our father and we're his sons and daughters, right? One of my favorite books is the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16 are, are two verses that are just explosive when it comes to this idea of adoption. Paul is writing to believers and saying, this is how you theologically need to understand yourself. This is how you can frame your own existence in the presence of a mighty God. And he words it like this in verse 15 and 16. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That is, when you come to Christ and you're given the Holy Spirit of God, that's not a spirit of slavery leading to fear but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is the most intimate word in that language for daddy, an intimate word for father. He goes on and says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, I've got friends over the years that when they talk about God, they just refer to him as father. They'll say something like, I was praying and Father led me to this passage of Scripture. Or I was fearful and Father helped me be less fearful and full of confidence instead. And I always kind of pushed back on that. I always thought, that's a little bit too casual for me. I'd rather say the Heavenly Father or the Father or God the Father. To me, that just seems like it's a little bit more proper. But the Scripture says this that God is not looking to be seen as a proper God, but as a real father to you. It's okay to call him father because he is your father. He has adopted you into his family. Call him father. It's intended to be intimate. It's intended to be personal. For you to have that kind of interaction with our heavenly father is incredibly important. Now, most of us know the impact of a father in our lives in an earthly sense. There are many people in this room today that have earthly fathers they're very grateful for, very proud of. And they've been given a good name, good upbringing, good relationships. And often today, on the other hand, many do not have that kind of relationship with their father. Some know their fathers, some don't know their fathers. Some are proud of their fathers, some are embarrassed by their fathers. But the reality is that our fathers have an incredible influence in our lives whether they are present or absent, whether they're good or not so good. I'll never forget a young man I grew up with. And I can even remember at the age of 12 and 13, recognizing him struggling because of the embarrassment of his own father's behavior. In that small town, everyone knew about it. And my friend was perpetually ashamed. And he struggled to overcome that. I didn't know all the dynamics of that, but I knew it wasn't good. And that influence was harmful to him. Now, but no matter what our earthly father is, no matter if he was great and awesome or not so great and not so awesome or anywhere on that timeline, there's something that God the Father has given you that overrides all that. 
and that is that he wants to be your father. And if you had a great father, awesome. And if you didn't, he's able to overcome that in your life because he will be your adoptive father and give you everything that no earthly father can give you, and that is himself. You know, the idea of adoption in the Roman world was a pretty uh, strong and legal approach to receiving children that were not your own. I want to read something to you about that. Roman adoption meant to declare that someone who is not one's child is to be treated and cared for as one's child, including the rights of inheritance. As a matter of fact, in the Roman world, if you were adopted into a family, you could never be disowned. You could never be cast out again. Imagine that. A family could cast out their biological children by Roman law, but they could never cast out adoptive children. Now, that's a pretty impressive picture. That God would use the idea of adoption to help us know something about our relationship with him. Now, in Roman adoption, five things changed when you were adopted. First of all, your family changed. All of a sudden, you were in a brand new family. Secondly, your name changed. You took on the name of the adoptive father. Then your home changed. That's number three. Your responsibilities, how you were to live life, automatically changed. You would probably be in a new line of work if you were adopted into a Roman family. And then lastly, your inheritance changed. Everything a biological child would have received as an adoptive child, you would receive immediately. And you would never be disowned. That's the idea God paints for us in the book of Romans of our relationship with him. You have his family, you have his name, you have his home, you have his responsibilities of the Heavenly Father, and you have the inheritance of the Heavenly Father. But even more, you have his security. You have his identity. He claims you. You have been claimed by God through Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? I can say amen to that. So here's the second line I want you to say. I am adopted. I am adopted. I am chosen. I am adopted. And then there's a third line that's in this text, and it may be the most important. You are accepted. Amen. You are accepted. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, of his grace, which he lavished on us. I call this probably the greatest part of our identity because it's where God actually takes action on our behalf. I mean, he declares these other things. He declares that he chooses us. He declares that he adopts us. But in this particular piece, where he declares his acceptance of us, he pays a price for that. And that price is called the redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. And that price was steep. He sent his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And that speaks volumes. And he did that so that we could be for himself, for God. By the way, when you read the Bible, you have to acknowledge God is a redeemer. God is a rescuer, isn't he? All the way through Scripture, he's rescuing us. And I think sometimes many of us see God not so much as a rescuer. He's less noble than that, we think. Less loving, less caring, less willing. He's on a throne with this deep, booming voice. And he makes hard commands for us. And he's frowning and he's closed and he's angry, maybe demanding. But when we do that and think about God that way, we miss his self-revelation. We miss what he says about himself. 
And what he says about himself is that he's a loving, rescuing God. And he says he cares about us so much that he chooses us, he adopts us, and ultimately rescues us and accepts us. That's the character of God. That's the nature of the God that we love, that we know, that we follow. Now, I'm a big fan of rescue movies. I, I don't like movies that are all dialogue. Let me tell you, when they're all dialogue, it doesn't take long before I somehow lose consciousness. I'm just not sure what happens. But when there's a rescue operation going on, I am, I am in that movie. I am in that movie. And I don't think anything takes the coat better than the Taken movie years ago. You remember the guy's daughter was, was uh, kidnapped in Europe, and he had a special set of skills, and he tracked down the kidnapper, and he destroyed whole nations and kingdoms to get to his daughter. You remember that movie? And at the end of that movie, he rescues his daughter, and what does he do? He hugs her, and he holds her tight because he's brought her back to where she needs to be in safety and security. Well, when you read the Bible, you find God is a rescuer that way and in many greater ways as well. And God rescues people with imperfect rescuers as well as one perfect rescuer. You go back through the Old Testament, you'll see all of these imperfect rescuers like Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Saul and David and Gideon, these are imperfect men that God uses to rescue his people. And God uses them time and time again. And then God sends his own son, the perfect rescuer, the one who knew no sin, knew no fault, who had no bad motivations, who came just to redeem our soul. So here's this meat carpenter who turned into a fierce battler for our souls. Colossians 1 is a passage of Scripture that talks about it that way. It says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. I mean, that's got a great ring to it, doesn't it? And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. What does that text say? It says that Jesus is the rescuer. He rescued us from the domain, from the kingdom of darkness. That's what he did on the cross. This was not about Jesus being martyred or put to death because people hated him. It was about him going through a rescue operation at the cost of his own life so that we could be redeemed. So Jesus is our deliverer. He's our rescuer. He's our forgiver. And having done all that, he removed the barrier between ourselves and him. He destroyed the enmity between us, and we are completely forgiven even from the worst of our sins. I thought of you in here probably think you've had some pretty bad seasons of sin, and that's kind of difficult for God to overcome. But let me assure you, it is not difficult for the Jesus who died on the cross to pay for your sins like he paid for everybody else's. Remember what Paul used to say about himself? He was the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. I used to read that, and I thought, oh, that's just false modesty. But the more I read about Paul, the more I realized, man, he was one bad dude. He was a religious terrorist that put people to death who followed Jesus. I mean, he may have been the worst of all sinners. I don't know. But the bottom line on it is that God loved even him and rescued even him and forgave even him. And if God can forgive Paul, he can forgive you. Amen. If he can rescue that man, he can rescue you. So here's Jesus, our rescuer, who has paid the price and he wants you to know that he can forgive you and accept you as his own. That's why Jesus talks so much about all these great parables that have to do with lost things found. Luke 15, 
the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son or the prodigal son. A few days ago, my wife and I were shopping somewhere and uh, I saw a lady walking my way and she had this very dark colored t-shirt with very bright uh, font on it, a bright statement. And it caught my eye and here's what it said. It said, he left the 99 to go after the one. And at the bottom of the shirt, it says, I am the one. Now thought, that lady understands things. She understands that there is a God who is a rescuer, who comes after us, who's able to forgive us, who's able to leave everything else in order to come after us. And that's the God we serve. And that's who we are. We're the one. We're the one he came after. We're the one he loved enough to choose us before the foundation of the world to adopt us and then to accept us as his own. We are the one. That's what that parable is for. For you to know that you're the one. And for you to know that he came after you. No matter how far from God you may be today, he's coming after you. And he's done everything necessary for that to happen. No matter how bad your past is, he's going to rescue you. No matter how complicated your situation is, no matter how awful the devil whispers to you that you are, he's able to rescue and forgive. No matter how weak your self-image or how horrible you feel about yourself, he loves you and accepts you and wants you. My counsel to you is let yourself be caught. Let yourself be rescued. Let him come to your aid. That's why he died on the cross, so that that would take place. Quit running and let God love you. You know, when I read these passages, I realize how life-changing they really are. He comes after us. He finds us. He forgives us. And you know what's left? What's left when all that takes place, when all that forgiveness takes place, is love and favor. That's what our passage says here, that he lavishes his grace on us. Man, that's quite a relationship to be in, to be lavished with the love and the grace of God because he has saved us. And that grace and that favor and acceptance, it's amazing. It's the same word. That word grace is the same word used of God's actions toward, towards Virgin Mary. He, he favored her. He gave grace to her. He gave that to us in love no matter what. Acceptance is our future as children of God because of all that God has done. It's not based on our performance. It's based on his choosing us, his adopting us, his accepting us. Years ago, I read this statement I'm about to share with you. And it struck me as a very real struggle that we sometimes have in our hearts and minds. It's unknown author. I don't know who wrote it. But it says, let me see the real you, dark and light, wretched and glorious, Depravity and holiness, the ugly and the beautiful, I'd find you to be wonderful. That's grace. This doesn't mean that we don't want to change our lives because in reality we want to change our lives all the more to pattern after the one who rescued us. But it simply means we don't come to him having changed our lives ourselves. We come to him because he's loved us first. I began by telling you the story of my own search for acceptance and it really all ended up one night in just a few moments of time in a parking lot the college I went to while I was seated in my car struggling with this idea of self-acceptance. At the same time I was reading through the Bible I was learning some of the verses that I shared with you today and the concepts of God's love for us and 
I'd already given my life to Christ. I was, a, I was a believer, and I'd even surrendered my life in a number of times that I would call significant, but that self-concept was never really there. And the problem with me was I never took all these verses and principles I'm sharing with you today personal. I always said, yeah, that, that's probably true. There are probably some that God has chosen. There are probably some that God has adopted, probably some that God has accepted, but I'm not sure that's true about me. I know too much about me, and I knew I didn't deserve that. I'd never taken them personal. They were all just general. He didn't love me that way, did he? He didn't accept me that way, did he? Me? At the same time, I was way too aware of whether I was accepted by people, and I wanted to pursue that. So I wanted them to like me. I wanted them to respect me. And I wasn't as concerned about having the acceptance of God. It seemed like people's acceptance was more tangible to me at the moment. And I think that's why people seek the acceptance of others. But in that moment, I was miserable. And in that moment, I'd gotten some acceptance from people. I had some achievements in my life. And I should have been feeling better about life based on my own self-awareness. But I was not. In fact, the, the more I achieved, the more I felt empty. It wasn't doing it for me. And I remember in that car that night, having a defining moment. It wasn't a time when God spoke to me audibly, but it was crystal clear what he was saying to me. He said, John, you're so worried about others accepting you, but I've accepted you, and is that not enough? Is that not enough? That was for the last words that I could remember penetrating my mind in that few moments in that car. And everything just kind of went silent. I was probably in that car another 20 or 30 minutes, just seated by myself, just thinking, is that not enough? And at the end of that few moments of time, I said, it has to be enough. I mean, if the God of the universe accepts me and loves me and has adopted me and has chosen me, if that won't do it, nothing will. And I said, God... That is enough. And I accepted it as fact. And it changed the way I thought about my life. Interestingly, I didn't care about what other people thought about me anymore. And a weird thing happened. All of a sudden, they started accepting me. And they started rejecting, uh, uh, respecting me. And maybe it was because I looked like I just didn't really care. It didn't matter anymore. Maybe it looked like I was a little bit more confident in God. Because I was. I knew who I was. And I knew whose I was. I belong to him. Now that's what Ephesians chapter 1 says about you and says to you. I knew from that, that day onward, I am accepted. I want you to say those three words. I am accepted. But pastor, what if I don't feel those words? By affirming the truth, you're going to have to deal with the truth. By affirming the truth, you're going to have to deal with the fact that God has chosen you, has adopted you, has accepted you. And I'll say this, from that moment on, I felt like I was complete in my relationship with God. Not finished, not fully mature, a lot of maturing is still happening, but totally accepted and knowing who I was in Christ. And he will complete you the same way through Jesus Christ. 
If we understand this, if we take him at his word, if we stand on this with confidence and boldness, we'll have a sense of whose we are and who we are. Remember those three principles again. God is who he says he is. God can do what he says he can do. And I am who God says I am. And so are you. I want you to bow your head today. And as you do, think about those phrases. You are chosen. You are adopted. You are accepted in Christ. At the conclusion of my prayer, the decision stations are open. We would love to talk to you about those incredible truths that God gives us. But more than anything else, I want you to take it personal today. I want you to apply it to your life. I want you to have a moment that is defining for you in your relationship with God. We'd love to help you with that. At the end of the service, I'll be in the guest reception room. We'd love to invite you there if you're a guest to talk more about a relationship with Christ and with Cross City Church. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, today I am so thankful for all of these declarations of Ephesians 1. Thankful that they're real. Thankful that they're personal. And Lord, today my prayer would be that every person in this room would walk away with a sense of foundation about how they should view themselves from your perspective. That each person would feel loved, that each person would know that they've been adopted through Christ, that each person would know they've been chosen from before the foundation of the world, Lord. Lord, you are so good, so loving, so incredibly powerful, and yet you reach to us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.